Greetings, and welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird, and I'm joined, as always, with Sam Backer. For the next hour or so, Sam and I will be discussing the late, great Jamaican producer Lee Scratch Perry, who recently passed away at the age of 85. In the wake of his passing, there's been a lot of great stuff written in tribute to Scratch and his wildly unique mystical and mythical persona. And of course, his career, putting out music for over six decades. And, and like an unimaginable amount of music. Like literally, you cannot imagine how much music Lee Scratch Perry produced. It's uh, it's unreal. Yeah, it's unreal. And also what's also unfathomable is also trying to understand his like far-reaching influence on music as well. And it also is just wild because there's also apparently like a bunch of music that's never been released that maybe burned down to Black Ark or something. Who knows? <laughs> but it's just wild. And like, you know, Sam and I will definitely be talking about these aspects of Scratch. Uh, but we wanted in true Money for Nothing fashion to appreciate Lee Scratch Perry's life and music from a slightly different angle. And that is to take into consideration the political and economic context in which Perry was able to carve out this space and become a prolific artist and i think in doing this and i'm curious what you think sam that a lot of like really fundamental reasons as to like why we even do this show will be illuminated in that effort and what i mean of course is that to understand and i think like truly appreciate the life and times of lee scratch perry and the music he produced or like anyone really you can't leave it all to the myth making of like armchair music journalists but you kind of have to take into consideration the political economy that perry was working in right yeah i mean it, it it's i feel like it, it's really easy to reduce and, and partially by his own intent to reduce lee scratch perry's work to a, a, a an artistry to like a fairly narrow band of his production and like this right. very very like larger than life persona and while that's like an amazing uh aesthetic <laughs> accomplishment in its own right and uh if if anyone's ever met i had the, the pleasure of, of meeting lee once uh for easily the most memorable evening of, of my <laughs> life uh and just like the, the the character and the artistry were very real and very much uh a, a work of living art but also that it, it, it can leave him two-dimensional, you know? And that by putting it in this broader context, it adds, like, a depth and a richness and, like, a like a, a connection to, like, the broader currents of human meaning that I think only lend his genius more credence and, like, more, more power and more props. Yeah, facts, facts. So before we get into deep into Perry and his like, you know, infamous Kingston, Jamaica studio, Black Ark, and, and then and then into the commodified arena of what I'll call like worldwide reggae post Bob Marley that kind of started in the 90s and into the millennium that he kind of took advantage of. Uh, we need to give some context about Perry's early life, which there's not a lot known. And I think also like Jamaica as an island and a nation. And Sam, uh, in preparation for this show, uh, we both were reading through uh, People Funny Boy by David Katz, a extremely extensive, detailed biography of Lee Perry. And um, definitely recommend. Right. Yeah, definitely recommend. And you were kind of texting me that like there was a lot of things about Perry's early life 
which you don't really read or hear about much um that are written or discussed or anything that really fascinated you right yeah well i mean so and, and this kind of goes pretty pretty quickly to like the broader um culture dynamics of, of jamaican music i mean uh jamaica is an island that's fundamentally shaped by um by the british slave trade and plantation system and then the the coolie system of kind of um basically almost as harsh indentured servitude afterwards right i think like not to get too detailed but i think that like slavery is actually outlawed in the british colonies and in the caribbean like in the 1830s but then kind of in its place comes this sort of indentured servitude which which you know is basically like a more formalized version of like slavery yeah 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 yeah. and and so that you know it's it's a it's an island with like profound and deep on like multiple uh for multiple vectors connections to a variety of African and Afro-diasporic traditions, obviously. And that is also like a colonial and then post-colonial society making the transition, I guess, from colonial to post-colonial society during Perry's lifetime, fully in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. And is dealing and going through uh, the kinds of revolutionary transitions that happen in many, many countries in in across the world in the middle of the 20th century. So a, you know, uh, a move where certain kinds of uh, practices and beliefs are like being <laughs> actively oppressed by the police <laughs> to ones where they're slightly less oppressed by the police. The the kinds of, you know, similar to the kind of revolution transitions that happening in places like Cuba, that's happening in, in Africa, is also happening to a, in a different way in Jamaica. And so reading this book early on, it discusses... Um, Perry's early life in like a very rural, fairly isolated part of Jamaica with, um, uh, uh, he was raised by a single mother, um, had a number of uh, siblings, both full and half. And just like the extent to which he grew up in this, um, exposed to a wide variety of like both like deep folk practices that later echo through his music and also fairly distinct and this is kind of yeah. amazing that 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 cats is able to figure this out like distinct and like very direct connections to a, a variety of african like religious and performative practices specifically cats argues that a group of laborers from sierra leone are taken uh, i mean are hired on but then kind of forcibly kept in this part of jamaica by um rapacious British uh, bosses and so that much later than the abolition of the slave trade there's like very direct connections to African traditions a variety of African traditions and that Lee's mother is uh, eventually fairly high up in this um, these religious traditions and like he had direct exposure to them and so that when the various kinds of rhythms and like sonic practices and vocal practices come out in his music later on it's a really direct connection to experiences that are happening at the kind of outskirt edges of Jamaican society that Jamaican society is like working through in real time. Yeah, I think he calls her an, uh, she, that she describes like Perry's mother as like an Etu queen and that she was an elder in her community that like led the dance and like Etu was this like, apparently this like spiritual dance that kind of came out of like Yoruba traditions that, that come out of West Africa that are like still very much being practiced. And it's like very rural part of northwestern jamaica 
extremely rural. And so, yeah, like Perry's basically growing up with these practices, but also hearing like Western music at rural dance halls. And so it's, yeah, like you said, it's really interesting that once he, you know, we fast forward to his life into Kingston and he's like, starts making music, like, and everybody's like, oh, he's just this weird, mythical, weird character, you know, like bad man. It's like, it's really kind of coming out of these sort of like folk traditions that are rooted in like his West African heritage, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like, it's like if um, the Beastie Boys later in their career, like started really engaging with like their like Yiddish heritage of their grandparents, it wouldn't be discussed <laughs> as like this insane, like, like avant spirit. And, you know, it'd be, it'd be like, oh, this is like how culture works. And like you, people connect with like the cultures of their parents and reuse them in all kinds of creative ways. And like, again, like Lee is very intentional, I think, or was very intentional about how he presented what he was doing culturally, but also just like that context of like that there are these broader performative cultural practices that he's drawing on in a very real sense. Um, yeah, it connects it to the broader like rural to urban story that I think... Um, defined a lot of the 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 jumping off point of Jamaican music and sex in, in our conversation previously you were kind of telling me about that is that it's not just like Jamaican music and modern Jamaican music industry doesn't just like appear out of nowhere it appears in Kingston at like a very specific point in that city's development right yeah so you have like a lot of young Jamaicans coming from the rural areas to Kingston and this is around the time of independence and there's like a 10 year economic boom and the sort of music industry is like starting to really take off and, and develop its own sounds around ska and Perry, Perry, as he describes it to cats in the book is, and this is a story that I think is also very ubiquitous across a lot of people who end up featuring in the sort of golden era of reggae or around this time in the music industry in Jamaica is that they, you know, they're hearing this music and they want to be a part of it. And there's like <laughs> the industry in Kingston is like very cottage. It's like, you have a few guys who are like producing records. They got like a house band or like a revolving cast of like members that like are like studio musicians. And then you basically have a bunch of people showing up to the studio. Hey, I got a song. Hey, get me on the mic. Let me hang out. <laughs> and like, that's pretty much how like this like very small cottage industry that's like very unregulated and controlled by a few people who happen to like have the money for a studio, like are the and like recording equipment are, and that's kind of like how this industry is working at the time. And that's how Perry really gets into music. Yeah. I mean, I actually don't even know if it's that weird, right? Like I'm just thinking about as you're describing that, I'm like, that's also how Stacks Vault worked right yeah like sure, otis sure. redding was famously a roadie and they had a little extra studio time and he was like well i've got a song and they're like yeah come on come on we're not doing anything in these 10 minutes it's only three chords like sure right right so i mean i do feel like there might also be something about like the and this is a theme that i think is really important for the entirety of perry's career about the tensions and the difference between like not just a, like a domestic, but like a profoundly locally oriented music industry and an international or national one. I mean, so in the case of like Stax Vault in Memphis, it's like a local versus national. In the case of a, a really small market like Jamaica, it's international versus domestic. But, you know, that if you're in a city as, I mean, 
Kingston's the biggest city in Jamaica, and it's like what at this period of time, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand. It's not a huge city. Yeah, no, King- Kingston right now is like currently like six hundred thousand, but I mean the, the the but the the country itself is like you know only like four million, and so like if you think about there's nine million in in New York City. Yeah, twelve during the day. Yeah, so so yeah, so like listeners like sit with that for a minute. The entire country of Jamaica has less people than New York City, like millions of less people <laughs> and kingston itself is at six hundred thousand. it doesn't even hit like a million and so we're talking about like early 60s obviously it's even smaller and so like a system where it's like who's hanging around the studio who knows who who has a song like actually probably that's like a a pretty rational way of dealing with talent right you've got a band that works together and that knows what it can play and like that is hard and very valuable to get and then you just you know someone has a song and they've been hanging around for a while, so they're clearly interested in music. They've seen how things go down. Lots of times, my sense is they also there's a um, you kind of there's thinking about like the kind of questions about local musical music economies that we talk a lot about in the show. You've got this kind of record store to dance system to recording studio, like people like the the, the goal is to have all three. Right. It seems like it's like you've got a record store. So, A, you can do audience research and find out what's selling in Jamaica and also have the hot new American and international pop songs, which surprised me. And and this might be jumping a little bit forward is is, um, kind of the the well-known story of of Ska is that there's people in Jamaica love US R&B. They're playing local bands are playing kind of versions of US R&B. R&B kind of shifts as it goes into the 60s. They're not getting new records of the style of R&B that people were really liking. And so kind of they start making their own and then they switch the beat a little bit and it slowly edges into to, edges into ska. But so that, that obviously implies like that they're listening really closely to like US music, especially black US music. But what shocked me with Perry is like, He's continuing to do covers of random pop songs, like, well, through the 70s. Like, he never stops listening to, like, whatever songs, like, movie soundtracks, like, weird cheesy hits, like, Western country songs from the 40s, like, whatever. He's willing to, like, recut it as a rhythm. And... The, again, so like, and he owned a record store eventually, which we, which we'll get to. But so there's like the record store. Then you play the songs out as a sound system, which again allows you to get new vocal talent and again cultivate audience response and get your name out there. And then that feeds back into your recording studio, where you make new versions of the songs you're importing and selling. And it's like a perfect circle that allows you to like constantly be producing new content, testing if it's good, and being profoundly aesthetically functional which is kind of funny to say but like able to to produce an incredibly compelling variety of new sounds with extraordinary quickness yeah i mean that's a that's a pretty succinct like way of like uh putting together what was going on at the time it gets more complicated music industry it's yeah it's extremely more complicated for sure and you know i would just add or i guess i would emphasize just the influence of american music at the time uh there's countless stories but like one of the sort of great stories that i heard firsthand in my research I, i've done a couple documentaries uh, radio documentaries for pri pri afro pop worldwide 
um, on uh, politics and music in Jamaica and have worked directly with David Katz. Um, but something that was told to us was about, uh, I believe by the the gentleman that runs Bass Odyssey Sound System, uh, that he used to have an, he would like take his like radio, transistor radio to like the top of his little shanty apartment or whatever you want to call it house like on the north side of the island and would be able to get signals from the united states but like only at night and so then he would like hear like country or r&b and then he would like go down to his like local record store and be like do you have this do you have that do you have this like write them all down and like try to like order them in obviously like the history and importance of sound systems in jamaica is thoroughly covered and we're not going to go into that but i will just say that you know for a long time there was american music particularly early on being interspersed with like music that was made locally before you know and like eventually i think like into the 70s and 80s you start like only hearing that and then the rise of like mcs were called you know like the dj toasters and all that but like yeah the 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 influence of american music is like huge and i mean really the influence of like american culture i mean like and and continues to be so like in jamaica so back back to kind of lee's early story is he kind of hears this he's like uh he's a young man growing up in a rural place he's like i do not want to work in the fields i have no interest in this um he like bounces around for a while as a teenager winning dance contests yeah and like winning prizes from those he goes to kingston and then he kind of like bounces around for a while like working his way up through this industry we've described he like kind of helps out some of the the ruling dominant kind of studio forces of the time and starts like make connecting people with other people starts doing maybe a little bit of engineering starts maybe writing some songs always has like from the very beginning has kind of a way with words it probably takes him like like half a decade or so like into the early 60s before he's really gotten anywhere in this music economy and even that's like being kind of an A&R guy right yeah and i think that it's interesting because during this time and this will come up later though i think like one of his first experiences that he like has in the music industry is with this like super famous early uh Jamaican producer named Duke Reed and he's hanging around Reed's studio and essentially lyrics that he's written get taken from Perry by Duke Reed and given to another singer. And there's like this sort of like disagreement and apparently like Reed like knocks Perry on his ass. (laughs) And so then like Perry leaves with his tail between his legs and ends up at like a rival producers like studio and I, and I just, I, you know, I think it's really interesting because I think this becomes like a reoccurring theme that really illustrates the sort of wild west that is the like Jamaican music industry, particularly when it starts to interact with a more like the more Western music industry. And also, you know, maybe illustrates Perry's own sort of like paranoia and like sort of slight i guess sense of fairness i don't which is like debatable we could talk about more later but like when it comes to music that he's produced and who he's working with and and things like that but you know it's like this you know this i feel like it really illustrates just like how kind of like wild it was is that you know for all the complaints that we have today there is an effort to sort of 
create some sort of like legal system around things like copyright and royalties and like you know in like the mid 60s like you give your lyrics to someone they're just going to steal them and like give them to somebody else and you can't do shit about it maybe that could happen today as well but (laughs) yeah no and 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 um i mean artistically it's complicated because like obviously the the complete and total disregard of anything resembling musical copyright is like the center of rhythm culture in which one song is going to be constantly covered and mutated and changed and like perry's whole career is like taking songs that he recorded with some people and adding new things and new thing you know at a different time and then changing it again five years later um but but also i think it, it's important to note here just like by the time that Perry really starts kind of producing and and recording stuff, which is uh, like mid to late 60s, um, he's had an extensive education in both in, in the music business in the fullest extent of the word. Right. Yeah. He's figured he's worked. In, he knows how to promote. He knows how to do the kind of like all the, the deals uh that that are necessary to make this stuff happen he's worked as an a and r guy picking out songs that are going to be hits taking the, the being able to notice the kernel of a cool idea and then rework it into something that's going to be hit hearing people who are talented and hooking them up with the right material to make the song go <laughs> Bob promoting Marley. the songs <laughs> yeah but also what but also i just want to go ahead and emphasize once again like this isn't a very small cottage industry that was going through an economic in a country that was going through a small economic boom but that was still very much divided uh on a class level and like would con- and would very soon see a recession that would basically never end <laughs> yeah yeah and and in, in all this time there are like between two and four companies that are actually pressing records in jamaica and like five or six major record stores that are like acting basically as like mini labels like it is a very small music industry kind of just back to what you're saying before about like a sense of fairness i almost think about it as like it reminds me a lot of if you go back to our episode about king records about these like very small record entrepreneurs there's this like small scale like entertainment industry business person vibe which is like it is a dog eat dog world out there and i'm gonna get mine because either you're gonna get your lunch stolen or you're gonna steal someone else's lunch and i think that for the rest of lee's career he didn't really trust anyone and for repeatedly for good reason like he's not wrong about either the jamaican or the global music industry but also was like very much about like getting his and not necessarily giving anyone else like theirs um but in a in a way that like actually is like economically rational more or less in these like or can be in in this world where like the industry where he learned the ropes is like everyone's ripping everyone else else off constantly and you have to fight for your place or else you're gonna get used and thrown to the side
fast forward a little bit, uh, he discovers Bob Marley, basically. He arguably releases the first reggae yeah, single. Yeah, debatable, but yeah, like, you know, he, he claims it, and like, you know, it was one of the early, earliest ones, for sure. Uh, starts, and like, you know, yeah, discovers Bob Marley, starts, like, uh, setting him off on his, you know, uh, insane worldwide stardom, and eventually opens up the infamous Black Ark Studios. Yeah, so after like a lot of time in which it seems like Scratch Perry is like increasingly frustrated by having to rely on other people's studios and studio time, and it really is he's trying to create an independent operation, kind of to vertically integrate. So he doesn't have to rely on someone else's label. He can distribute in Jamaica efficiently and ideally that he can get international distribution on it. It's worth taking a second that that he opens Black Ark in 73 and basically builds it in the back of his family's uh, home, kind of like engulfing his former yard. He had, he had like, and it makes sense. He, he really was, I think, like, uh, there's this period of time where he's kind of caught in, in, in almost like a trap, it seemed like, where he's had a couple hits and he's produced a couple like really big hits, some of which are distributed via mostly Trojan records to England where there's a growing market for reggae that's about to lead into like ska and like the skinhead movement and like change the face of British culture forever. Um, But he doesn't have like, he has like cash flow problems basically. So he's spent, he spends years like working at other people's studios, doing favors for them or helping them out or producing for them in exchange for studio time or for them lending him money so that he could press records so that he could sell the records that he's producing and like would sometimes record an artist and record like four tracks and two tracks he would give to the other labels and in exchange for enough cash to press (laughs) the copies of his own tracks and it's just again there's this like small small time hustler basically yeah yeah exactly small town small time small town small time hustler for sure definitely which was really kind of like the way in which like you had to work it like in 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 kingston and as you were suggesting like maybe in other places like detroit as well but like you know like that that was that was common at this time but i mean in jamaica it was like a must and i think that's also interesting just from like a, a listener perspective is that that constant production and the constant production of music both for like domestic consumption, like domestic isn't like in the house consumption, but also for sound system consumption. If you've ever, like dear listener, bought or seen a Lee Scratch Perry record, that's it's called like Lee Scratch Perry and then some like name, like upsetting upsetter cuts. And it's like 12 or 15 tracks of somewhat different styles or the same style with different artists, some of them the same, some of them not, sometimes the songs kind of sound the same that's because like in this period of time he's just releasing a and for much of his career but like he's just releasing a massive torrent of music he there's certain like rhythms where he like releases 12 different versions of the same rhythm so like the same basic backing track with different vocalists on top of it multiple ones of which are hits 
none of which are on like LP. So like the idea of like the record as a way to organize this aesthetic production just completely falls apart. And so they there's a million ways to collect them. It's not clear what the most rational, do you do it by artist? Do you do it by like <laughs> what studio is being produced in? Do you do it by like what year of like Scratch's work it is? Do you do it by like what backing band? Like it's very unclear like what the most rational or the most obvious way. Plus they're all on different labels. So who knows who owns the rights? Plus who owns the rights for the original rhythm that they're all recorded on? And like it's why to an outsider, it's this Lee Scratch Perry's discography. To, to, honestly, to anyone, Lee Scratch Perry's discography is this like sprawling unholy mess because he just because the condition that he were working in, it's not the kind of approach to marketing or producing music that, like, as a as a listener in the United States, I'm used to artists doing. I mean, the only person I know who's like it is like Little Wayne. Oh, yeah, but even Little Wayne like had a whole sort album yeah titles. album titles and like a label you know that was like organizing this stuff i think yeah the, i mean i mean this is like probably this is like still somewhat of a problem today in like jamaica but particularly during this period it was just a lot of like producing records and putting them out producing records and putting them out and like like if you go through these seven inches you'll see these like label names that you've never heard of because there's like all these other offshoots and maybe they were like owed people money and like weren't allowed to like release it so they release it on like some like you know clandestine like label that is like here today and gone tomorrow there's like misspellings i mean it's just like like th- th- this is like common and so we're talking now like we're getting into like the early 70s right and so i mean this is and you know bob marley is starting to be on the rise and bob marley is really the point at which like the western music world starts paying attention to jamaica and so if you just kind of think about like the international the international yeah yeah so i I just i bring that up because i think you know to your point sam is saying like you're not really used to like a music industry like sort of working this way it's like yeah and then you have a very organized highly funded western music sort of industry yeah profoundly exploited which is both kind of more in the united states and england at this time coming into Jamaica and wanting to basically like find the next Bob Marley. And this is the sort of like industry in which they're running up against, which is, you know, still very loose, very cottage, a lot of production, very little organization, absolutely no government laws as far as I'm aware. And if they were, nobody was regulating them. Um, You're also talking about a time in which there was a major slowdown in the economy in 1970 in Jamaica. And then that led to a lot of like violence and like tension in like Kingston particularly between like politically backed gangs and so I mean like not only is it this sort of like wild west in the music industry I mean like the country itself is sort of like a wild west that's like profoundly corrupt and like and violent or and increasingly turning into an undeclared civil war yeah essentially essentially that would like continue to last for like the next like basically 15 years or so uh at its at, at its height i would say at its height and like you know in, in 67 there was a declared state of emergency and then in 72 there's another just state of emergency and so like this is the sort of like context in which <laughs> perry is not only like being a small town small time hustler in hopes of achieving what was sort of like i think the dream at the time for anybody in the music industry in kingston which was to start your own studio this is the context in which he's like trying to establish this at this point. 
And I think that's important because I think that like the more we talk about the Black Ark, which he eventually opens in 73 in his family's backyard, as you mentioned, like I think it will give like it gives context to sort of like it just goes showcases like how crazy things were going on like around him like during this time. Yeah, and and I kind of want to just also talk about like uh, two other I think factors that probably help contextualize the move to Black Ark. And so one is and 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 um, it's like you probably know more about this than I do is that there's a move in Jamaican culture. That in some ways, it, it's it runs somewhat in parallel to like the Black Power movement in the United States towards a more politically outspoken and in a Jamaican context, more religiously outspoken um, cultural movement. So Rastafarianism, which had been really like an oppressed religious minority for much of the 20th century, really starts to blossom and starts to kind of make inroads, not just like kind of more broadly in the culture, but into musicians. So you have a lot of musicians who aren't Rastafarians in like the mid 60s becoming Rastafarians and then outspoken Rastafarians in their music. And that starts to change the music that's being produced in in Jamaica as you start kind of a slower in some ways more like weed oriented music different rhythmic tradition different like rhythmic instruments are being brought in different kinds of wordplay are being like thought about and worked with and just like in the context of this political and economic disruption to Jamaica it also offers like a, a perspective to start really critiquing what's yeah. going on. Yeah, it's almost so like, like this kind of this like spiritual revolution also going on that really comes out of uh, the poorer communities in Jamaica, but particularly in the sort of like downtown Kingston, like, you know, poor, the poorest areas of like Kingston and the sort of shanty towns and everything. And really like it's getting it, its message out through the music, you know, at first with like Bob Marley, who like, you know, it's kind of exactly what you were saying in the 60s wasn't a Rastafarian, uh, you know, closely cropped like haircut, you know, but obviously the image that we think of Bob Marley now is like, you know, obviously with dreads and like smoking pot and everything. So he like was really taken by Rastafarianism and that became like, you know, his belief for the rest of his life. And like, that's really kind of a common story. You know, it kind of comes out of it comes it's in music the music is primarily or most of it that we you know listen to or still listen to like comes out of these poorer areas from these poor musicians and perry himself at black arc really is also a catalyst for not only bringing this not only bringing this music to jamaica and the larger world that is very critical socially and politically but also there's this sort of interplay between the rastafarian communities and Perry and in regards to music and bringing in like certain styles of music as you're saying like Nyabingi drumming which is like you know part of like a religious ceremony that Rastafarians like our sect of Rastafarians would like um, engage in that involved a certain like hand drum that then becomes part of and, and Perry starts incorporating that into the music basically which if you think more broadly is like a repeated occurrence in a number of musical styles across kind of the Afro-diasporic world, right? So you have similar things happening in Cuba with certain kind of Cuban drummings. You have certain similar things happening in Nigeria. Like this is like a very, the, the, the reintroduction of these like deeply rooted spiritual practices into forms of popular music as a way to have kind of 
uh, anti-imperialist messages is like a profoundly effective and profoundly affecting uh, uh, like pretty broad spread artistic move in this period. Again, some of which is catalyzed by the global popularity of Bob Marley. Right. Totally. Yeah. And that, and, and, and but it gets messy, right? It really gets messy if you start bringing these two things together. Right. And like, like if I really want to kind of dive into this is like, you know, once Perry's black arc really starts to take off and he's just like producing successful records and like involved with Island records and Chris Blackwell and like, all this you know and like the money starts to flow and like the desire to like record or like be a part of black arc or be involved with perry like starts to become you know starts to become like a major hub of like music you know black arc does like in kingston you know so there's like people hanging out and coming through and like wanting to like sing for perry and like you know make music and records and then you have people flying overseas from like the u.s and england and like chris blackwell's there and hanging out and this this gets messy right because and i find it interesting because you kind of have this like mix of this like deeply spiritual deeply critical of the you know let's just say like the western lifestyle and world right and this like materialistic you know money driven society right and yet in its connection with music it inadvertently has to like be completely involved in this like super kind of like dirty money-centric industry particularly when you start getting like you know not only like in jamaica but then also with like these like western music like industries as well and, and like and that gets in that gets kind of really messy and like it, it really becomes like a like a a uh a stress point not only for like perry but i think for like the greater like jamaican music industry at the time yeah like what do you do if your rejection of what you see as a profoundly corrupt, racist, oppressive, slave-dealing society and world capitalism, if that rejection and the music that you produce in and through that rejection then becomes, in that rejection, becomes incredibly popular among, like, Southern Californian like college yeah or maybe not even yet you know like we're you know like uh downtown scene like new york or whatever and like or like in you know you know whatever uh in london you know all these like punk bands want to like you know you know come in and like work with like a jamaican artist because it gives them cred yeah exactly but i mean it's also interesting to yeah johnny johnny rotten's there and it's like what yeah there's these stories like yeah like johnny rotten wanted to cut like versions of the sex pistol songs like with perry and like you know it didn't work out like i don't big surprise i don't know but uh, but you know but then like we also have to take this into consideration that like not only like is like perry running and like you know the jamaican music industry is like working within the system and like a loose cottage industry of like connections and payola and allegiances and, you know, backstabbing, it's all happening with an extremely dangerous and economically strange context that was Jamaica. And, you know, Perry's having to like fend off like politically backed gangs who are like coming to him and be like, you need to pay me money. And they're pulling like mob shit where they're like, we're going to give you protection. So you give us like, you know, however much money, like a month or a week or whatever. And like, so he's running up against all of this. And not only does it like cause a lot of rifts, but I think it just illustrates just how difficult the situation was in which he was making some of his greatest work. And I think that you can't really talk about, oh, this like 
crazy, strange, mystical persona that was like Lee Scratch Perry and like write that mythos and not get like the full picture without taking this stuff into consideration. I'm gonna put on an iron shirt and chase it down out of earth. I'm gonna put on an iron shirt and chase the devil out of earth. I'm gonna send him to outer space to find another race. I'm gonna send him to outer space to find another race. Satan is a evil host man, but him can't choke it on I man. So when I check him, my last in hand, and if him slip a gun with him hand, I'm gonna put on an iron shirt and chase Satan out of earth. I'm gonna put on an iron shirt and chase the devil out of earth. I'm gonna send so this is the moment, right? So we are early 1970s, mid 1970s now, really. Yeah. Bob Marley is exploding in international popularity. Uh, kind of Bob Marley international popularity, like Mach One. He like he hasn't broken America yet, but he's very much, with the exception of Jimmy Cliff, the Mach biggest. One. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mach One, Mach Two, yeah. Um, because it's, so, so Marley doesn't really achieve the kind of level of global success in terms of like record sold and reach until after his until after his death. Uh we talk about that in the our um episode about posthumous records. No, sorry. We take about that in our episode of Greatest Hits Records. This is the rare greatest hit and posthumous record that really made an impact. It's right, a legend. Right, right. But so it's like the mid seventies, Jamaica's increasingly caught between two caught in the teeth of an economic recession and between two political parties that have that are now increasingly like have armed gangs working for them like and let's uh, be clear uh, the two like, political parties in jamaica essentially represent what was happening on a global scale which was like the cold war and you know m maybe it's not like heavily documented but it's pretty much assumed that like the cia was involved like kissinger was in there and like this is the same stuff you've seen happening like in this is angola countries. this is brazil yeah. this is argentina <laughs> I mean, this is this is Mexico this is and Indonesia. Like, the cartels. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. So that's happening like on a, on a level. So like, yeah, like you pull this out and it's just like it gets it becomes basically on a global scale. Yeah. yeah. OK, so to contextualize where we are in Lee's career at this point. Right. So through the late 60s to early 70s, um, kind of petering around in the early 70s, Lee had had both hits in Jamaica and internationally especially in england through kind of like a distribution deal with trojan records and like throughout this whole period of time has been like taking this like enormous flood of singles and every like year or so packaging like 10 or 12 of them together and like having that press as, as an album which all those albums by the way have absolutely fabulous covers <laughs> they're like amazing covers of like him in like a cape him as yeah, a gunfighter him in like the many moods of the upsetter they're like really like top 10 album covers so in this period of time trojan after a number of years of success trojan runs into problems and the company is on shaky ground so basically can no longer distribute perry's records and then he's got a kind of tough couple of years 
where he really struggling to find the kind of international distribution that had previously given him like a, a good chunk of his income. And he's kind of forced to really focus on the Jamaican market. And then Bob Marley, who he had worked with extremely closely for several years at, in like 70 and 71, uh, before the Whalers and, and Marley kind of go off on their own, found Tough Gong Records and go international. So Marley signs with Island Records, um, which is founded by Chris Blackwell, had... Um, he's a Englishman with like uh, a lot of uh, grew up in Jamaica with a lot of ties um, and knowledge of that music. That record label had had a couple of early hits by like publishing or, or um, producing Jamaican music and then selling it to the British audience. Had kind of moved away from that in the late sixties, early seventies. Had a pretty impressive rock lineup, but was pivoting back towards Jamaica in this period of time. And in the wake of Marley's success, Chris Blackwell sees what Scratch Perry is doing, sees the kind of mythos that's like been and legend that's developing around him in Black Art Studios, and they sign a distribution deal. And this is the moment when Perry has probably the most simultaneously connections to the Jamaican music industry and an outlet with a fairly major British record label where he can get stuff published and distributed on like a, a pretty much a global scale and then in the midst of that also this economic and political conditions are beginning to really spiral out of control in Jamaica and all of these are happening kind of at the same time and this is where to, to kind of all accounts this is where Perry starts to to shift away from the like fairly business focused on the grind personality that he had had for the previous what 20 years almost and starts to 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 morph into the Lee Scratch Perry of international legend. Yeah, this is the time when like basically Perry becomes the sort of the madman in which like everybody kind of writes about and talks about this side of his persona that that uh, you know, he ends up I think probably playing up a little bit and like really kind of propels him forward like later in his career in a lot of ways. But I mean, we also have to take into consideration everything we've been saying like just like the amount of stress not only economically but like also just for like your own like physical well-being that's like going on at the time like not only at black arc but like you know in jamaica as well and like you know at this time like kind of perry becomes like really paranoid that people are screwing him over he's like seeing bob marley's success he's like making records that are getting shelved by you know full on spending money and making records that are getting shelved by by island records and chris master yeah, chris black masterpieces that are being shelved yeah like, like the, the Heart of the Congos, which is one of the greatest records I've ever made. It's an absolutely gorgeous record. Uh, I right, Island doesn't release it because, as Chris Blackwell says, he's like, yeah, it's a beautiful record, but like, I don't think it's going to sell. It didn't have like a single, which like that's like once again, like Perry now is like coming up against, you know, this, an artist, a like creative genius is like coming up against the economic concerns of like a western music industry which unfortunately is his like main bread and butter yeah and at this point it is his main bread and butter and so he starts i mean kind of this is again this is recounted in many of the obituaries he starts kind of covering the studios like 
put like like painting over various letters and all the walls starts putting x's over everything and basically um, becomes like disinterested in like really like making music becomes disinterested in like in the rastafarian community that like he was attached to and basically sort of like renounces them like he uh you know starts kind of like bad mouthing bob marley which actually like continued on until like after his death kind of revolving around uh a promise that like marley gave him that he was going to send him some money to fix like his perry's car and he never did and so like there's this, this wild story about how like perry holds on to these two singles that like marley cut at kind of at the height of his career and like refuses him to like give him to marley to be released also you know there's all these like stories like max romeo has this story where like you know perry would like cover his car and like cow dung to like ward off people who like he felt were like coming around the studio either asking for money or wanting to record or like that might be like violently trying to attack him you know but it, also it, these are true things like these are all things that are yeah. happening it's not like he's trying to ward off evil spirits that are trying to kill him it's like there are people and major producers right like king tubby is killed right around this time who's a one of the major uh kind of as with everyone in, in Lee Scratch Perry's musical life, like a collaborator slash sometimes sparring. Yeah, partner. and like if you, you know, like eight hundred over eight hundred over eight hundred. Yeah, it's was murdered. murdered, and over eight hundred people were murdered in the lead up to the nineteen eighty election. You know, once again, in a very like imagine if like eight hundred people were murdered. You know, in the lead up to the mayoral election in New York City, it'd be absolutely insane. And so this is a country, let alone a city, that's much smaller. And so, I mean, it's stressful times. And like in Jamaica, there's no real explanation as to like why there was this turn in Perry's life and why why Black Ark kind of like fell into disruin into ruin and he kind of stopped recording and then and then burnt yeah and down. then burnt down in 1983, which at times in his life he's like said that he did purposely. Um, other times he said it was electrical fire. People that were there in his family like have mixed accounts. Who knows? But there's an irony to all this time as well because later on this stubborn strange spiritually mystical personality that becomes part of you know lee scratch perry's mythos allows him to eventually like find a space in this sort of global reggae scene that becomes highly commodified and put through like you know the capitalist meat grinder as i like to call it but you know there's like another element to it which you know i'm curious what you think about you know that is in this sort of myth making around perry and the madman persona being played up something gets lost and like that is like this economic context and the history in which perry really turned into the supposed madman madman character and like it's it's also worth you know if you if you dive into interviews with perry at pretty much any at any point in his career after this it's a very specific type of behavior it's a consistent like like a mixture between like non sequitur and total lucidity. It's using non sequitur to get to say like very pointed critiques in a way that allows him to kind of make them and then bounce away so you can't like get at him. Yeah, it's like, like very much like really like yeah. Yeah, and like a trickster persona. Yeah, and like a trickster persona that um, and again is one that is deeply rooted in like certain kinds of like Rastafarian reasoning practices, like a playing with language, certain kinds of like various Afro-Dutzburg belief systems. But it's not all an act. I mean, it is who he is, but we also have to, you know, contextualize the real material concerns that were happening at the time and kind of how this like persona really developed. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It, it is who he, you know, it was who he was. 
and that was a person with agency who acted in a certain way because that's who he was. And, right. and I and I do think the material concerns, I mean, at one level, like this is a story of like what a remarkably talented, incredibly perceptive, sometimes troubled person. Like we, we talked a little bit about this. It's like it's the intersection between like the grand forces of history and the profoundly personal stuff that goes on within any of us, right? That Perry's under like it's like stress at like any number of of like historical, cultural, economic levels. And there are all these different forces that are pressing down on him in a way that like, how could that not remake your personality? In 1983, when um, Black Ark burns down, he's like nearly 50. And I think, and I only, I only bring that up because I think that it's also really interesting, like how much of, of a life that he's lived up to this point and also like where he's come from. If we think about this, like we go back to the beginning of the show, just like contextualizing the like rural area that he came from where there was like Yoruba practices still going on and like the country is still under a colonization of Britain. And then you fast forward 50 years and he's like at the intersection of like basically what's become like a completely different world. If you left right, you must go wrong. Now is the time to stand up strong. Away with white men philosophy. Give us the teaching of his majesty. Cross over, cross over. Cross over, cross over. Cross over, cross over. Cross over, cross over. There's no need to fuss and fight. In one we should all unite. If you left right, you must go. So we kind of just worked through like the last 20, 25 years of Perry's career. I mean, basically, there's a period of time after Black Ark burns down when he's kind of betwixt in between. So he leaves Jamaica and becomes part of what you call like the broader dub diaspora. He works with some people in New York. He works with Adrian Sherwood. He works with Matt Professor in London. And then kind of as I would say, like as the legend continues to spread and develop and as I would say the kind of the global interest the continued global interest in reggae kind of via but not exclusively confined to Bob Marley continues to become like a major cultural thread through like huge parts of the world he's able to kind of remake himself as kind of like a a a wandering troubadour vocalist basically like he does increasingly little and in many of these records no production he'll get on mic and talk and sing and reason and produce like definitively lee scratch perry music with a, a really a wide range of collaborators some of these records are like really really good 
uh, I'm a big fan of his record with the orb. <laughs> also, <laughs> yeah. by the way, not just that, cool. there's a, I believe, two three-hour mixes released via Fact Magazine that are just like more the orb and Lee Scratch Perry that are like absolutely like sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like fi- it's just great. They just like they just went outing myself as an orb fan. Uh, <laughs> well, great, whatever. Um, some of these are not as good. They're really a mixed bag. But like it's this kind of move where it just seems he's able to kind of continue in some ways, right? Like having left Jamaica, having lost pretty much most or all ties with what's going on in the domestic musical economy. I don't think he makes any dance hall or like interacts with the, the next like gear shift of Jamaica and rhythm culture, yeah, which yeah. happens in the in the eighties. He he's kind of like makes a jump fully to this to the other side of the bridge, to this global music economy. But at the same time, it's kind of, in a way, like continuing to do the kind of anti-colonial versioning that he had been producing at Black Ark, that by using this kinds of like uh, lyrical structures and like word games and like very clearly stated propositions and like alternate, like being like, a clear exponent of like an alternate way of being and viewing the world that's often either like directly against or like slipping around criticisms of the kind of the power structures of the music industry, like manage to like, like stay alive, stay working, keep making music, keep expressing himself. Win a Grammy. (laughs) Win a Grammy in like a, like a kind of like what, I've come to view as like a heroic one man fight, but not even fight. He's cause it's like, like judo, right? It's like misdirection. Yeah. And I think that's what, kind of what I was trying to like get at in a sense that like the, the, what kind of like put him at loggerheads with so many people, uh, kind of like after the heyday of black arc and possibly it, it alienated him in Jamaica for a while. And amongst other people like in the music industry and like led to the demise of black arc and all his erratic behavior and all of that ended up kind of getting like folded in to his persona and like turned into a major a major driving force of like why people were so fascinated with this man and yeah, of course, there's also the music, right? But as you said, like the later music is a pretty mixed bag, right? But like in a weird way, he kind of comes out and yeah, he's like working within the system and like, I don't know how much of a living he was actually making, but you know, he was making some sort of living. He was working a lot and like, yeah. He bought a house in Switzerland. Like I think. Yeah. And he was okay. touring and he was like working with major artists and, and all that. And so like in a weird way, it's like, like he got folded back in and like the persona was like kind of a huge part of it in a sense, which is like, yeah, it's just really fascinating. And. So what you're saying is like what what at some level disrupted his ability to work within the Jamaican music industry actually then becomes his calling card for the global music industry and allows him to keep working productively. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and like in a weird way, if I'm you know, and this the way I interpret it, in a weird, strange way, this is also going back to the original kind of reason why not the original reason, but going back to like one of the reasons why we did this is that it's kind of the reason why when you read his obits and there's a lot of great stuff that's written about him, you get a kind of a play up that he would want 
which is like of this sort of like crazy spiritual like madman and this like mythos but you don't get like any of the sort of like political economic aspect of it which like we're obviously just brought to you in the last hour or like his professionalism or his profound knowledge and skill of the music industry all of which by the way i would argue probably really helped him as he kind of moved from project to project consistently putting out records for yeah, 30 years yeah yeah I, I agree i agree i mean six decades really <laughs> six decades of work but so so i guess just what what you were saying though is, is i think that that not only when you read these obituaries that play up this like personality that he would have probably really liked not only are you missing like this context but like you're missing that like in many ways like lee scratch perry's career is like the story of 20th century culture it's like everything is in there and like it's also like not to get like corny but like a story of like striving and triumphing over profound adverse adversity at like almost every level it's like a triumph of the human spirit like it really yeah is. yeah i mean not, yeah not to get too like uh you know a and e on you but i i, I do like i do but i i do like the point though that you made that you made about it i mean like you follow his life and you kind of follow like the development of like the entire music industry at least not only yeah in like you know the western music industry but also the western music industry's interaction with the whatever global music outside of the western economy i guess i'll call it and a variety of domestic music industries how that you works. get like and how it works and like and how someone can make great art like both in and against that industry yeah yeah i agree i agree well we hope that the last hour has like given you a more complex and uh deeper knowledge of lee scratch perry um may he rest in peace we highly suggest going and listening to so much but sam to, maybe to take us out can you because uh, you got to meet the man and unfortunately through all my travels and uh, coverage of uh, Jamaican music and reggae and all that I never met him but can you uh, maybe give us uh, a little antidote about your experience with him and uh, just to take us out I, and there's one specific that I that I want you to to to, to, to say but I, I'll, I'll leave it up to you to see if you choose that one I mean the, the one that remembers it so he was at like an art show it was like his was art like show right? the and we're like in Brooklyn it was and you're his in Brooklyn, art right? show yeah, yeah, it was his a gallery art show. He was there doing all the paintings, doing all the paintings the night okay, before. I, oh, I love it. Yeah. So if I can just pause once again, like everything we just said to conclude the show, another perfect example. He's winning. He's like in an art show in Brooklyn and he's doing all the paintings a night before. <laughs> Anyways, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> and you're covering this. And so I'm I'm like covering this and I'm like I I, I asked him like like so what's your favorite like material to draw with and he just turns to me and he goes like lightning <laughs> uh well we'll put a bow on that rest in peace lee scratch perry uh a giant of the 20th giant. century uh, we su suggest going and delving into his catalog if you for some reason haven't music by burn language you're listening to money for nothing please go rate and review us and we'll see you in a couple weeks bye
29. That's the extermination of excursion and the extermination it means X29 is a computer. And the X29 is a computer, Lee Scratch Perry. There is no, no, in, no, nothing, no, no bacteria in my brain. No bacteria in Lee Scratch Perry brain. No contiria, no frontiria, no bacteria in my brain. No cytiria in my beer. And no gonorrhea in my beer. No cocaine in my brain. And what about Marcus? Marcus Garvey.